Blog Talk Radio. Monday through Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. This is your host, Chuck Morse. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. And as is our habit here, we're talking religion and how it intersects with politics. Uh, And joining us, of course, is my Tuesday regular co-host, Deacon Michael Wanowitz, from Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Church in Sharon. Mike, how are you? Uh, fine, thank you, Chuck. And again, <clears throat> with this uh, season of Lent in the Roman Catholic Church now off to a start, uh, these next 40 days preparing for the celebration of the great Easter, <clears throat> Easter celebration itself. Mike, what, what have you given up for Lent, if you don't mind my asking? <clears throat> Pardon my voice. Um, giving up is the uh, typical kind of fasting requirement we find in Matthew when you pray, when you fast, when you do give alms. And my predilection over the years has been to spend not so much giving up a particular thing like uh, chocolates, people say, or going to the movies or some kind of thing, but try to more be more intense and allocate my prayer time and the time I have for other people to be more judicious. And rather than giving up, it's giving in or giving to. Nice. So it's kind of a, a chance to, um, I don't know, I guess maybe the Judaic equivalent would be atonement. There's an opportunity to take stock of what yeah. you do mm-hmm. and, um, and and learn to prioritize, kind of go over what you actually, yeah. Yeah, I think part of that process is kind of a um, chance to actually examine what one mm-hmm. does with one's brief time on this planet you know, life is is like a blink of an eye when compared to eternity. Uh, that's correct. You know, there's an old saying, you want to do the right things, but then you want to do things right. That's right. And um, from my, my side, I mean, I'm very busy right now getting ready for the um, the nationally syndicated show. And that's uh, that's going to be a pretty big adjustment for me. It's kind of a, um, a radio situation where I'm going to be up on good old-fashioned radio stations around the country, and I'm going to have to learn how to really operate strictly within a clock. Right. So talk about time. Uh, time know, management. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not used. To, I'm used to doing my own thing, and now it's there's going to be a break for news. There's going to be a break for sports. There's going to be a break for commercials. There's going to be a break for this and that. And uh, yeah, this is just. Good old-fashioned radio stations. So, well, I'm um, sure I, I'm sure you'll do well. You've got enough experience and background in a number of uh, uh, media matters, if you want to call it that, to uh, to adjust properly. Thank you. I mean, it's uh, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that um, I mean, I've been through this before, and maybe people can relate to this. But when you start a new venture like this you kind of draw a blank almost. It's like, I don't know, what am I going to say? What am I going to talk about? What am I? You know, it's kind of like a a questioning of, uh, it's kind of like an opportunity that uh, this is actually a recurring theme, I think, not only in the in the Bible, but um, in American life. I mean, I think of John Bunyan, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, 
right. that, or, or for that matter, Augustine. Uh, you know, you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as individuals, we have these opportunities that come along a couple of times in our life, where we are, we're, we're almost just starting with a clean slate, and we have the opportunity to re- not necessarily reinvent ourselves, mm-hmm. but certainly take a look at what we've been doing with fresh eyes, because uh, I'm going to be introduced to a whole new audience of people who've never heard of me, and, um, you know, all around the country. And, Mm. you know, these, it it sort of makes me take a look at the fundamentals of what I've been doing with with this great experience of radio that I've been so dedicated to all these years. So I think, yeah. I was just thinking as as you were describing, you know, a new adventure and uh, a new way to look at things, even though you've been doing things that you have been used to doing, but in a new light. And, you know, can you imagine whoever it might be, and we really have no clear idea, uh, who would ascend to the papacy in these next couple of months, perhaps, for the Roman Catholic Church? Can you imagine that individual with many, many, many years of perhaps teaching, administering the sacraments, being a speaker for particular people, uh, counseling, and all these good things, and then all of a sudden put in this primal position? Yes. My word. I know that's it's uh, really hard to fathom for any person that um I mean that's the ultimate because that's probably the biggest um stage of any theolog- theologian of any faith right. is the pope in Rome I mean there's nothing quite like that I mean that's that affects uh, not just the catholics of the world but as I've said it affects everyone the tone of it I mean and every it seems to me that every pope as uh, you know, their personality and their personhood has been very paramount. I mean, it, it has let, it has put an imprint on on, um, on not only not only the Catholic Church, but I think upon spirituality in general. And so, uh, it's a huge responsibility. Right. I know. Any any, any talk of, of of this topic, Mike, in your circles? Well, I think uh, it's uh, something that everybody is keenly aware of and even though the initial shock last week and the discussions uh, as to why, what happened, what's going to happen, all the details but people continue even if it's not so blatantly overt in conversation but it's at the top of so many people's minds in the local church here in Boston throughout the world trying to anticipate what changes may or may not take place. Uh, We have progressive people who are saying, wow, what an opportunity. Uh, We have traditional people who are saying, we hope that orthodoxy continues. All these kinds of things are going on. As I say, whether it's spoken deliberately or just in the minds of everybody, until we find out who then is the next pope, uh, it's going to be for every Catholic, and perhaps for most Christians, and as you say, like yourself, a Jew, just saying, what is it going to be like? Because it will be different. Yes, and it will affect all faith, all people of faith. And in fact, it will affect the way um, the Lord God, King of the Universe, um, is perceived on, on, in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very profound uh, religious matter. I mean, I, I, speaking for myself, I hope that the Pope is Orthodox. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, I really do. And I, and I think that I would ask people who are progressives to, to also hope that the Pope is Orthodox because there are plenty of outlets for progressives in this world, you know, that, that are even whether they be religious or non. But you'd want to see your church, I would think, be true to its, its faith, be, be what it is in terms of adhering as closely as possible to the, um, you know, the faith of the fathers, to the ministry of Jesus, to the uh, Bible. You know, I mean, whether you personally are, you know, fidel, you have fidelity to that or not, there is a great benefit in having such a, uh, an institution. And that why make every institution like every other? I mean, the, the Catholic Church is a church. Why not be a church? It's not. It's not. You know. Why turn it into, you know, a liberal college or an academic or, or a, um, you know, an encounter group? I mean, there's plenty of those to go around. I mean, I think we all have a stake in it. It's like I, you know, the same way we all have a stake in the traditional family. I think, whether we are traditional or not, there's a certain stake in the institution and in trying to preserve it because it, it's a it's a hallmark. It's it's a benchmark. It's something that. Uh, that can be striven toward whether or not we achieve it. Uh, so, I mean, that's sort, of, that's sort of how I see it. And, and that, that's my hope. That's my prayer, actually. And I, I think, think it's that, a momentous time. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, too, that, you know, we talk about, or I, even I use the words orthodoxy and progressive and traditional. and But at the same time, even if we compare... Uh, as many people say, look at the changes in the reform from the Second Vatican Council from 62 to 65 that resulted in some of the uh, positive uh, effects on people's worship these days in the 21st century. But at the right. same time, the sacramental life of the Catholic Church, was, which is at its core, from baptism through Eucharist and, and the others, the seven sacraments that were codified in the Council of Trent in the 16th century were reaffirmed at the Second Vatican Council. The changes, perhaps, were theologically nuanced to indicate a broader understanding of, again, what does it mean to be baptized? What does it mean to engage in the sacrament of marriage? What does it mean to follow God's call? But basically, the core beliefs uh, are still at the base, and that's what orthodoxy really is about. Right, and yet, uh, Mike, we had on a, uh, a Catholic religious writer recently who talked about the fact that um, even though Vatican II upheld the, um, as you say, the five mm. sacraments, and I assume it also upheld the seven deadly sins. Um, nevertheless, those things have been not necessarily watered down, but they've been reinterpreted. Mm. The language has been given new meaning, um, and that meaning has been a liberal meaning um, since that time by uh, by liberal mm. uh, the clerics and by liberal the Catholics and by liberals in general. Um, so do you see that as having happened? Well, I think uh, in the the effect of that is that, again, if we look at canon law, if we look at the catechism, uh, if we look at the basic structures by which we can define the seven sacraments, we can define the things that I've been talking about, certainly in our universities and certainly in theological circles, 
Uh, there are people who are extending ideas about how to perhaps, you know, again, modify a particular concept, but it's like theological inquiry as opposed to saying, here's the way it is, has been, and will be. And I think that's the, been the problem for many people uh, in the United States who were awfully imbued with this idea of pushing past a certain line, a demarcation between what has been and what might be, uh, and again, causing some consternation. And we have the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, of which Cardinal Ratzinger, Ratzinger held uh, as the uh, head of that before he became Pope. But their position is to examine what some of the theologians in this country and Latin America and other places are doing that might go beyond the orthodox position. So it's, there's a certain caveat to people's progressive research and inquiry into, quote, new concepts. Now, when you say go beyond the orthodox position, you mean that in that they're going to be less than more orthodox. Is that right? Yes, yes. Okay. And... Um, I mean, one of the um, sort of the mantras I've heard from people who are not necessarily liberal Catholics, but people who are critical of the church, mm. is that such an institution as the celibacy for priests, and for that matter, I suppose, the celibacy for nuns, is something that was invented. It's not something that's in the Bible, and it was something that was created by the by a pope in perhaps a millennia, millennia past, and therefore it should be overturned. Now, I mean, again, I, I don't like to get, you know, involved in the in, in in the inside business of the Catholic Church because it is what it is. But as an outsider, it seems to me that that institution has a lot of validity and, and that, uh, you know, that theologically I, I think I understand what it's about, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's a, it's a calling. Well, that's correct. And, you know, <clears throat> the argument that some people make uh, for celibacy being an option as opposed to a discipline that one undertakes is that, indeed, going back to Peter and the Gospel and others, there have been uh, priests, bishops who have been married in the church. But at a certain point in time, a church institution or any institution takes a look at how uh, again, its members conform to a lifestyle, conform to a style of accepting the call to be a witness for and a teacher for and a, um, a confessor for those who might be looking to understand what the Catholic Church is about. And for those who head up the church these days, at least at this point in time, uh, the leaders from the Pope on down through the cardinals and the bishops feel that celibacy is the best, not the only, but the best way of providing a formative way for people to have a lifestyle that can best fit the needs of those who come to the leaders of the church for help. Uh, okay, my guest is Michael Wanowitz, Our Lady of Sorrows, Roman Catholic Church. You're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849 is the number. 347-327-9849. We're talking uh, Catholic matters, but we could discuss, of course, anything relating to faith and its intersection with politics today. 
Uh, Mike, it, it seems to me that the point of view that is expressed with regard to the priesthood, that it was somehow um, derived at by the church itself, not in the New Testament, not in the um, in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. for that matter, that uh, therefore it, it's not valid and mm-hmm. it should be changed. That's a, that's like a that's a Protestant point of view. <laughs> I mean, uh, which is fine. <clears throat> right. That that's what Martin Luther said. <clears throat> he took a look at the the sacraments and he reduced it down to just three, mm-hmm. saying that the rest of it was just made up by the uh, popes. And that he said faith and faith alone. Um, and also, from a Jewish standpoint, that was the Karite movement of the uh, early Middle Ages, which was a heresy. And which, I don't know if you know much about this, but um, there still are Karites. Most of them live in the Middle East, and there, there's even a Karite community in Israel today. But what they, what they said at the time was they broke away from rabbinic Judaism by saying we are going to adhere strictly to the Torah, we're not going to follow the the progression of the uh, the Sanhedrin, the rabbis, um, and, and so they had very odd rituals. Like um, on the Sabbath, they would literally not have any light at all. Mm. I mean, they would they would sit in the dark, wow. and uh, you know they would they they would absolutely mm. adhere to a very in a sense it's a very fundamentalist. You might compare it to um, certain fundamentalist sects within Protestantism. That mm. every, you know, that this literal translation of the Torah without any commentary, whereas Judaism was much more of a, uh, sort of, sort of, I think, very similar to Catholicism, by the way, mm. in this way, mm. in that it, was, it had a structure and it was somewhat evolving, not necessarily to water down the faith, but to bring the faith into the practical world where it could be preserved and practiced and integrated into uh, into life, not in the sense of allowing for licentiousness at all, but more just, uh, if anything, how to understand what was meant in the Torah, what was God's idea when when, um, when those things were put in place, and uh, and that as a result there have been uh, you know Talmudic rulings, there have been rabbinic rulings, what they call responsa. And that in order to be in a position to make responsa, one has to achieve something. I mean, both spiritually and in terms of who this character is and their leadership. And and also another little factor that I hate to remind the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel, the Haredim, is that they also had jobs. They had day jobs. The, 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 the You know, the, the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> right. they, they had families. They, had black, they were blacksmiths, so they were farmers. And then they would study Torah also when they could. Where, you know, I mean, there's a problem today in Israel with some of the ultra religious who do not do anything but study Talmud. They don't, uh, you know, they don't have national service, they don't have jobs. And they're sort of, I mean, I hate to use the word, but they're kind of on welfare. Um, and it has had a corrupting influence. That's not what Judaism called for. Right. But, uh, but the point is that. Uh, such matters as the evolving of the uh, celibate priesthood and the celibate uh, convent, these things were decided by the church fathers and by the uh, popes and by the, uh, you know, the theologians who are in a position spiritually to make those decisions over long periods of time and over probably even centuries of contemplation and prayer and study and, and scholarly work. And they made those decisions based upon that. 
and and to my way of thinking, that is a much more practical um, way to do things. As long as it, it does adhere to the uh, the in the case of Christ, of Catholicism, the ministry of Jesus. In the case of Judaism, the Torah. You mentioned the uh, New Testament, and some people who would say Martin Luther King, for example, that a sacrament, one of the seven sacraments we have in Roman Catholicism, uh, must be found in the Scripture itself. And yet it's a question of whether or not, as we Roman Catholics say, yes, we can locate uh, passages in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, that give us the undergirding for the seven sacraments. There are those in Protestantism that say, well, they don't quite read it the same way, and there's the particular deviation, if you will. But, for example, with the Eucharist, which is fundamental to our worship as Catholics, we can go back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four gospel writers who told the story of what we refer to as the Last Supper, which has the format of that Seder meal, that Passover meal, and Jesus went into Jerusalem before the famous <clears throat> arrest and then trial and crucifixion. But he said to his followers, I long to celebrate the Passover meal with you, my friends. And they found this place in Jerusalem uh, on the second floor, what's called the upper room in this particular building. Uh, they met uh, and they celebrated according to the classic custom of the day with bread, with wine, with blessings and cups and prayers. And as Paul, St. Paul later on, reminded the people that he said at that particular time, Jesus took bread, broke, offered a blessing and gave it to the people and then we have what's called the words of institution, which we repeat every time we have Eucharist in a Roman Catholic Mass and liturgy. And this is timeliness. I mean, it's just been going on since that particular uh, uh, evening supper taking place, and it continues today. So it isn't as if something was interpreted and then put together uh, sometime later. It's been happening since that time. Right. I mean, it's quite consistent. And by the way, when you mentioned the Last Supper and you mentioned the Seder dinner, the Seder meal, that that goes on not so much even putting aside the issue of the Seder. It goes on in traditional Jewish households every every Shabbos uh, on Friday evening. It goes on in my household mm -hmm. where you have a special bread, what's called a challah, mm -hmm. and you have wine, and there's a blessing on the wine. There's a special blessing on the bread. The bread is not regular bread. This is uh, it's, it's religious bread. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'd call it sacramental bread, but, you know, whatever the Jewish term is, the, the Hebrew term. But, uh, you know, there's special prayers and there's a, there's a washing. You're supposed to you wash your hands before you say the prayer on that bread. Uh, you've seen those braided, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yes, right. And, and it's covered, you don't see the bread, it's covered under usually an ornamental, kind of a little bit of a covering. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, my, in our case, our daughter actually made one at school, and uh -huh. she used that. And, and then it's, the cover is removed, and the, the blessing is said usually by a woman at the table. And then there's a little salt shaken on the bread, and it's divided up, and each person has a piece. Mm -hmm. And this is after there's a ritual washing. 
and uh, then and you then can speak. You can't speak until that is finished. I mean, that's a very traditional mm. way to go about it. I mean, and, and there are variations on the theme. <clears throat> right. Uh, and then, of course, the blessing on the wine is even more elaborate. There's a pretty lengthy um, Hebrew benediction that's delivered over the wine, and then the, each child in the household receives a special blessing uh, for the, from the father, both male and female. And uh, the, the, some, some families, the, the husband blesses the wife with a special blessing, which is controversial amongst a lot of liberal Jews because it mm. seems like it calls for the woman to be somewhat subservient. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, but, right. But, but it's very traditional. Sure, right. And, and then you have the, uh, the, um, the Shabbos dinner, and afterwards there was there grace after meals. And I think that a lot of Jewish households do, and of course, at the very beginning, you, you, there's candles lit, right. and uh, there are special blessings on the candles. And this has been going on every Friday night from the days of Jesus and before, right. all the way up till today. There has never been uh, a Friday in, 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 in the chronology of human existence mm. where somewhere there has been Shabbos, yeah. a Jewish household mm. that hasn't observed the Friday night rituals and, and, and has not observed Shabbos. And, of course, the rabbis like to say that um, if every Jew in the world observed a, a Shabbos, a traditional Shabbos, um, then there would be the Messiah would come. There would be a, a, a great miracle um, would happen. And, um, and And these things didn't just happen overnight. I mean, these things probably precede Jesus by many, many centuries going all the way back to, um, I assume, the days of the old temple, you know, the, uh, right. the first temple. So, uh, you know, the, these are traditions that I think whether one is a believer or not, they have great value just by the fact that they have been done for so long and that they have an intrinsic value in and of themselves, putting aside faith in God, which some people have a problem with for reasons that I don't understand, mm-hmm. but nevertheless they do. Uh, but they bring the family together. Each person at the table gets to be involved in some kind of a function. Everybody participates. It's a very holy experience for anybody, whether you are a believer or not. So, you know, I, I think the same thing can be said for various rituals that have built up and have existed in the Catholic Church. You know, it's a, whether one is a believer or not, these things have an intrinsic value. They have you know, there's a certain order to them, you know, that they create, if you want to look at it from a social standpoint, they create a social order that is of great value, um, you know, which which makes me wonder why it is that some people are so critical of it. And I'm not saying about Christians either. I'm talking about Jews who are critical of Jewish practice. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, they, they, they just are all bent out of shape over, <clears throat> over right. things. And I just, you know, it's not like, they're, you know, it's an infringement on them. But uh, but people are. I mean, always have been. I mean, people were. This is why they were critical of Jesus himself. Mm. Too religious. Right. Too uh, you know. Too moral. Too standing up for religious codes. I mean, it bothers people. Yeah. It it bothers people that to see somebody living, uh, you know, trying to live, uh, you know, a spiritual life. And um, I, I see uh, fellow Jews, very secular Jews, are so critical of religious Orthodox Jews who are just trying to live a spiritual life. You know, they're just trying to fulfill the Torah as best they can. They're not bothering anybody. 
but uh, but there it is. I mean, it's something I think that's gone on every generation. Maybe it's something that it stirs people up at a very primal level mm-hmm. in their own life when they see it. I don't know. Yeah, I you know I kind of use the word solipsistic, a uh, big word, but just the idea that some people like to look at what's happening uh, around them, whether it be worship or whether it be politics, perhaps and kind of say that they have a perspective that's unique and should be the correct one. You know, the people who have this I mentality that we talk about, solipsism or narcissism, the individual. So rather than saying, well, look, what we've been doing for these millennia, millennia after millennia, some people would say, you know, there might be a better way to do it. And, you know, that could be good in terms of uh, deciding whether to have a, 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 a automobile fired by gasoline or fired by something else. There might be many kinds of different ways of doing it differently. But within the inner soul, what we've been doing for millennia might just be the right thing anyway. That's right. And also, I mean, putting myself in, in someone else's shoes who is – taking what I think is an extremely arrogant position by saying, well, I think there might be a better way to do it. Uh, What I would say to that person is, okay, let's take a look at the tradition itself. Let's take a look at the thousands of years in which this has been conducted and see and and learn that, you know, otherwise it's ignorant. I mean, try to learn exactly what this thing is, why this thing exists. If you're a Jew, go consult with a legitimate rabbi, maybe, do some study on this, and actually learn about it, learn the background of it, it, it to the best of your ability before one comes up with such statements like, oh, well, I think there's a better way. I mean, oftentimes when people make those statements, it is out of ignorance. Now, if they do the, if they do the study and then they still conclude that there might be a better way, well, then, you know, present it to, uh, for, up for the, t- the process, the Talmudic process, which is that it's debated within the community, in the open, over time, and deliberated very carefully and weighed and measured, you know, really can take many lifetimes. And, uh, you know, in in a sense, it's sort of like uh, the way in a secular example, that's the way our Congress is supposed to work. You know, I mean, we, we have a deliberative body that weighs and measures social issues, and then uh, it goes through a long process before it's, there's any kind of a, a vote on it, and then then there's a Senate, which is supposed to be even more deliberative and is supposed to even be more, in a way, detached. And then, of course, there's the president, and then there's the Supreme Court, which can throw it out because it's not constitutional. And, and there's a system that's put in place. You know, I mean, this is what <clears throat> this is in a sense. Religion <clears throat> means the word comes from the Latin word religio, which means regulated. You know, it's right. a it's a way to uh, to regulate these sorts of very profound spiritual and social questions, and um, and it needs to you know the, the impatience and the arrogance of some people uh, is something that uh, often comes I would contend from ignorance, not from um, a position of genuine knowledge and understanding. Anyway, why don't we yeah. take a brief break? You're listening oh. to Chuck Moore Speaks. You're welcome to join the conversation. 347-327-9849. Michael Wanowitz is here. 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned.
May I refer you to my Kindle, my Amazon Kindle page, where you'll see the books that I have spent a long time writing over the years. I recently discovered that my unpublished manuscripts could be posted on Amazon Kindle uh, at no charge to me, the author. Indeed, I actually get paid a royalty, which is, I think, an interesting development for writers. Um, anyone can do this. I mean, the book needs to get, get some scrutiny from the people at Amazon before they'll publish it. But nevertheless, if you have a legitimate manuscript that has uh, a certain number of words, I think there's a minimum of 20,000 words to call something a manuscript. I don't, I'm not sure of the exact number there, so uh, look at the fine print. But um, and, and you've written it. There's no plagiarism involved. You know, it's your work, and everything has been credited properly. And you can you can and you have a cover for it and you have all the basic functions that a book has, then you can publish the book on Amazon Kindle. I've already published three of mine, and I just posted a fourth. Actually, this morning I finished, uh, did the final touches on it, and my my dear daughter created a cover for it through her Apple system, and it's up. It won't be actually. It's going to take a couple of days before they actually make it available, but um, it's called ACORN, the takeover of America. I use the, the example of a very left-wing group called ACORN and how they created this octopus-like organization of almost 500 front groups, that uh, some of which are for-profit, some of which are not-for-profit, and how they took billions of dollars over decades in taxpayer money, and they funneled it through this corrupt system where, where there's all sorts of shenanigans, and then they use it to not only support radical left causes, which is fine, but I have a problem with it if it's taxpayers paying for it. But they also develop this uh, political infrastructure that is, I would contend, affecting our future. It's affecting this culture. It's affecting the way we do business. And uh, I use it as sort of a metaphor for looking at, in a practical sense, in a domestic sense, where we're going as a, as a nation and as a people. So um, the book has been posted. It should be available. It's only it's two dollars and ninety nine cents. I shouldn't say only because that's a lot of money for some people. But <clears throat> that's how much it costs. And you can read it not only on your Kindle but also um, on any one of your Android devices, whether it be on the computer itself or on your cell phone. It's amazing. I mean, this uh, the way people can read these things. And uh, so I'm getting all of my books published and up and available before the syndication so that I have everything in place and I can then start to talk about it on the syndicated show and maybe interview some authors who have to do with it. I'm not going to deny the fact that I will be promoting these things, of course. And um, I'm proud of these books. I work very hard on them. I mean, to my way of thinking, writing is a fantastic 
way to organize your thinking on any number of topics. Um, I have another book that I will be putting up that's a little bit more complicated. It's not a quick one, and that is my Bible commentary on the book of Genesis, which I've written, but I'm not going to do it until I rewrite it and re, re, re-examine it. This is, you know, one of these books that you don't just <laughs> you don't just put something like this right. out there. You right. have to make sure that everything is is good. So I, I just don't have the time for that right now. Uh, I'm hoping once I'm up and running with a syndicated show, then I could turn my attention to a project like that because that can be very consuming. But in the meantime, you're welcome to check it out. Go to Amazon Kindle and just put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, and up they come. Uh, so uh, with little, I think you can even browse them for no charge. So you're welcome to do that. Mike, we're talking faith and its intersection with politics. We're talking about, in a sense, how religious law is made. In Judaism, they call it halacha. In Catholicism, they call it canon law. And um, I think that... Uh, our guest last week made the point that um, even if even if the new pope, the new pontiff, is a, is a liberal, is a is a progressive, so-called, that, that uh, his hands will still be tied. He can't just go in and and start to tinker with with age-old things. I mean, that's just not how the system works. Is that true? Uh, yes. Again, again, <clears throat> going back to what I said earlier about the core of the church doctrine and life and worship and strictures so that what has happened over the years and has been made the bulwark of how Catholicism operates, a particular person elected to the papacy and taking the reins of leadership cannot just by fiat sit down with a quill or a pen or what have you and say, let's do it differently, like it isn't his responsibility or ability to modify the way the ship has been going in a certain direction. Now, there are things he can do to suggest, recommend, make changes that have been developed through deliberations like in Vatican II. Again, the Great Council that in, from between 1962 and 1965 published papers that developed new ideas and reforms agreed to by all the bishops throughout the world. What popes since then have been able to say, given what came out of the council, perhaps we can modify pieces of our discipline. For example, in 1970, Paul VI, pope at the time, took a look at how ministry was being modified by some of the ideas and restored the what's called permanent diaconate, that is to say that young uh, men, uh, perhaps married, family, job, could be ordained as deacons serving the church, mm-hmm. and a new branch off the tree of ministry uh, sprung up. But it wasn't like creating... That, that was, you were part of that, Mike. Yes, yes. Right, and that's that's what I've been doing for the last 30-odd years. Uh, but what I'm saying is that it didn't come out of Paul VI's head. He right. didn't invent something new. What he was doing is clarifying and making it something that could be a discipline of the day based upon what the church had been formulating for some time. So that's the way things operate. They go through, as you say, in politics, but... 
bishops, other elitist theologians get together, uh, reach some kind of idea or conclusion, and then they move ahead slowly, surely, conscientiously. And it was also, in a sense, a change with regard to girls being able to do the um, altar service, which I think was a good change, in my opinion. I mean, I don't think that that's... In, in any sense, radical or, or changing the nature of worship, because maybe I'm speaking here as the father of a, of a, of a young lady who yeah, I know right. would probably have resented not being able to do that if we were Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you, you know, what we're talking about are, are the kinds of changes that, um, that, that are, you know, in a sense the, entirely the purview of not only the Pope, but um, the internal apparatus mm-hmm. to take a look at... Um, conditions as they exist now but the issue of priests mm-hmm. priests have a special are very, it's a very special category um, in terms of um, how the uh, religious functions are, are conducted and I, I think that that's very unique and has been preserved um, what, what's happened why is the priesthood in, in such a state of decline I mean I think that it was it was at its high point if you will perhaps in the 1950s um, and, and yet since then there's been a precipitous decline in, in the number of priests. What can be done? <clears throat> well, yeah, it, it, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, you had a situation where in 1956, uh, I'll quote some numbers, <clears throat> there were 72, which is sort of a biblical number by itself, but there were 72 young men, <clears throat> pardon me, who were ordained to be priests, for the Archdiocese of Boston. Lately, each year in May, when the Cardinal Sean O'Malley ordains a few young men to be new priests in the Archdiocese, the numbers have been like five, six, and seven. Extraordinary, mm-hmm. extraordinary change. So the question has been what's happened over the last 50 odd years uh, where we see this just, you know, kind of incredible change in the call to the priesthood, the call to work in the church. Uh, so, no, so many factors uh, that predate Vatican II. They post-date the kind of sexual revolution that some people attribute it to. So many, many, many reasons. But I think young men have so many more options than they did back in 1950 and 1960 to serve God in some ways. And, um, you know, I think the number of people in a family situation, when you had back in the 1950s, maybe six, eight, ten people in a family, you know, from the oldest to the youngest. And if somebody in the family uh, was encouraged to become part of the church structure, that was a great thing. Uh, families like to see that happening. It was bringing the church together with families. But now with like 1. or 2.1 children per family, again, the whole notion uh, of how society is affected uh, is quite different. So, you know, really it's just so complicated and to understand what has happened. So maybe it's more now of a, a personal calling rather than a phenomena of the society or the family 
kind of um, encouraging it. I know mm-hmm. that it was maybe a year ago I read an article in the Boston Globe. I think it was a cover story for the mm-hmm. Sunday magazine about this young man at, at Boston College who was just an excellent student, an excellent person, well-liked. They, you know, he was, a, he was an athlete, he was a scholar, well-rounded guy who uh, who was committed to becoming a priest from the day he went into that college and who, fi- who felt that this was his calling and who uh, was going on to the priesthood. Um, but he seemed unusual. I, I don't know if you remember that, but it was. I think we had talked about yeah. this. Yeah, <clears throat> right, right. But um, that that seems to be much more. It wasn't so much that he was encouraged to do it by his family. I don't even. I, I think that they were even perhaps somewhat ambivalent about it. Mm-hmm. It just was his personal calling. Mm-hmm. At some point in his life, as a teenager, he had a, some. Maybe it was some kind of an epiphany or or some sort of a revelation. Mm-hmm. But he uh, he really felt that this was a calling. He felt that. Uh, mm-hmm. He was ordained. I mean, he felt that God was calling him to the priesthood, and um, and he was very dedicated to it. And I want. I mean, it seems like that. That's in a sense the new, the new priest. Um, in a sense, the same thing I guess has happened to the, to the rabbinate. In that, um, I mean, I, I I don't want to be critical here, but I mean, I, I almost shouldn't even walk into this area, but I'm going to anyways. And that is that there has been. I don't know, maybe I hate to use the word, but somewhat of a dumbing down. <laughs> okay, right. You don't have the level of, not you know, of scholarship and of holiness and of spirituality and of dedication. Now, it's become, maybe this is a phenomenon of the college education and the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York and, and, and some of those, those sorts of things, where, where now being a rabbi has become more of a degree, you know, it's because it, it's not so much <clears throat> right. They're, they're men and women of the cloth. I mean, and, and by the way, I hate to criticize, but the the women rabbis, in my opinion, have not been up to snuff. Um, but putting that aside, I mean, and I, I know I shouldn't say that, but yeah, you know, we're talking about people who are not spiritual. They're not holy. They're not, you know, they're not actually, you know, immersed. In the Torah and in and in living a, a a Jewish life, you know, and keeping the Jewish laws and and traveling in the Jewish community is, you know, and helping other people and going to people's homes when they're sick and helping them and doing all these things that rabbis did. In a sense, it's become much more of an academic exercise. You know, they're like doctors. You know, it's kind of like. Um, you know, they've got a degree in it, so they're going to get a job. It's kind of like, I don't right. know, I, I, maybe I'm not right. here, but, um, I mean, I've noticed in several encounters I've had with rabbis over the past several years that there's something missing in terms of, of, of how they comprehend their functions. You know, it's it's all sort of, uh, you know, very kind of sterile and academic and, you know, it's not, and, and I'm even talking here about some very orthodox rabbis too. Mm. It's not just uh, the more liberal rabbis. Reform, yeah. No, it's not just them. And by the way, there have been some brilliant reform rabbis um, as well. I mean, Rabbi Gittleson, when I was growing up at Temple Israel, was the author of several books, and he was a spiritual man. I mean, he was also an academic, but he lived the life. I mean, he was he was a, he was the real article. You don't find that so much anymore. I mean, it's a it's much more of a uh, 
a kind of an avocation as opposed to the actual who the person is. And I wonder, I mean, with the church, maybe that's uh, that's paralleled in the fact that you have less men going into the priesthood now. I don't know. I, yeah, I think that's an interesting comparison <clears throat> because, you know, people get called individually, but, you know, understanding that going back again to the 50s when you had 72 men being ordained and they came from larger families perhaps, they came from a community that affirmed from the first idea that they may enter college, enter seminary uh, along the road to priesthood, they were being applauded, they were being encouraged, they were being given the kind of uh, uh, spiritual communion that they need. These days, when somebody says, I think I might have a call, then people say, really? I mean, you have this kind of skepticism about whether that's the right thing to do in the world. Why not raise a family? Why not do You have so many choices. And so the individual who breaks ranks from those who are going off to work in Wall Street or work in sports or work in media or do any number of things and raise a family, uh, you're just crossing a different kind of line these days. Uh, and I think that's true, whether it be perhaps, as you say, in the rabbinate or in the priesthood or perhaps in any other kind of formal uh, religious responsibility. Right, and I think that in a sense the, the, the priest and the rabbi have been replaced in many, or many of their functions have been replaced by secular functions. Like, for example, I think that psychology and therapy right. has replaced what priests and rabbis used to do, you know, back maybe before the advent of, uh, of Freudianism and whatnot. Uh, by the way, I'm not necessarily criticizing that, although I think it is therapy without uh, moral content. But, you know, perhaps in the old days, you know, people went to their priest or they went to their mm -hmm. rabbi. In fact, they did. And they would have a consultation if they were having marital problems, if they were having personal problems, if they were just having a, you know, problems with the children, whatever it was, social problems. And this was a natural thing. I mean, that this was part of the function of the uh, of the religious and spiritual mm -hmm. leader, and they brought to it a spiritual content. So, I mean, that's one example I think of where mm -hmm. the job itself has been somewhat categorized. It's been um, put into a um, into a box. You know, it's sort of um, the the grandeur of it and the overall mm -hmm. nature of it has been diminished a little bit. Um, over time. And then, of course, the other aspect that I think you seem to be alluding to here, Mike, is this idea that um, belief in the creator of the universe, belief in Christ, has become somewhat de rigueur. I mean, that, that, that people mm. who are believers are looked upon slightly askance. Mm. It's like you're against <clears throat> science. Right. And, um, and that's something that... Um, has, I think, been internalized. I'm not necessarily saying that the theory of evolution, you know, I'm into that. One of my books is right. about that. But that has a part of it, you know, this idea that, um, you know, this is science, we're told, and that to to disagree with that, you're, you're somehow viewed as, um, as, as a lesser person. Uh, you know, I keep getting these, um, these emails, and I can say this because it's public record, from my good friend uh, David Packman, who is a 
a so-called progressive talk show host out in Western Mass. Very nice young guy. He does a, a show that you can actually see on YouTube, and he's handsome, and he's, he does a good job. He's very articulate. Uh, he's come on my show a few times. But he keeps sending out the daily bulletin of the topics he's discussing and the guests he has, and there's this drumbeat of things, uh, of people that he has has on his show that point to such matters as uh, belief in, in the Torah or belief in creation or belief in this or belief in that, that this is creating child abuse, hmm. that wow. this is creating insanity, that this is a form hmm. of mental illness. Yeah. And, huh. uh, yeah, th- this is a, march, a, a hmm. mantra. I mean, it's a part of what my, my former co-host used to talk hmm. about. Right. Uh, right. This guy George Lakoff actually came out with these these so-called scientific studies that showed that conservatives are really mentally ill. You know, Mm. that that people who have traditional values. And it's not new either. It goes back Mm. to uh, John Dewey, the so-called progressive educator, who who wrote books about this back in the uh, the early 20th century. That that these ideas, you know, the family-headed, you know, the, the sovereign father-headed family and the belief in, in the church, he called them churchers, you know, that, that this was somehow a form of social dislocation, that it was, it was retarded, basically, and that, uh, that it needed to be play, replaced. And I think that that view has taken the high ground in our culture. Uh, it's been internalized by people and and I don't think people are necessarily aware of it. I think it's something that has become an accepted norm in that there's a subtle understanding that um that to disagree with that could create abuse because nobody wants to be accused of being anti-science or, right. which is another way of saying that someone's crazy. Right. <laughs> so, I think that that has a lot to do with why when you have a young man or a young woman say, you know, I have an avocation, I have a calling, mm. that that people are like, well, what? Why? Yeah, right. <clears throat> right. You know, whereas in the past it was understood why, because people had a, a rooting in faith. I mean, their parents had that, and they they imparted it, and, and their faith had that, and their priests had that, and their rabbis had it. Mm. And so it was kind of a – it was sort of the sta- the, the, the standard – um, location in which mm. we all operated, whereas now that has shifted. It, right. It's no longer where we operate, so that people who come along who who do have those notions, they're viewed as freaks. I know yeah. I certainly have been. <clears throat> well, that's that's true. You know, it's kind of like uh, when people go to the army recruiter or to the Marines as a young boy out of high school and sign up for a tour of duty. So many people say, what is going on with that kid? You know, mm-hmm. what is he giving up, and why is he doing what he's doing? Because he <clears throat> feels he or she called to serve his country. And yet, somehow, that's viewed as being a strange thing to do. So I think there's a parallel here, too, in our country, that uh, when people make choices, individual choices, that mean that they have discerned that somehow... There's a path to follow to help, uh, whether it be your fellow person in America or whether it's to help somebody in a religious context, that the community at large just looks askance and says, what is going on with these people? That's right. And I think that to, to bring things full circle, since we're reaching toward the end of the program, 
This is why I would argue we need to have a um, a certain standard set in our faith. This is why I support the and I hope and I pray that there is an Orthodox uh, Pope um, in March that that comes up because they they you know regardless of uh, of their temporal powers. Mm-hmm. Their personality, their faith, their spirituality can set a direction, not only for the church, but for all of us who are people of faith and for the culture. Because we have gotten so far away from it, and people do not understand that. They're not aware of it. And that uh, that while I, while I certainly appreciate and respect the right of the secularists to not believe and to uh, to conduct their secular organizations, there certainly are plenty of those. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we should reassert whether we are religious or not, mm. that there is a value and that there is a place in this world for God-based people, and that uh, there is a uh, it, and it's a value that transcends the practical. And we could point to many examples of practical benefits involved there, <clears throat> both in the personal lives and in the family life of of people, but also in institutions like, for example, Catholic charities, but also in the bigger sense. There is a sense of uh, where where we are as a human race in our relationship with and our understanding of the creator of the universe. Mm, well put. So, uh, Mike, I, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Well, it was uh, very comforting to have some conversation that can bring about uh, a vision for individuals and a vision for the world and to take stock of where we are as people uh, and as a country and as a world, because we have a particular stake in what happens today and tomorrow. Yes, we do. And uh, thanks so much, Mike. We shall return. Uh, I hope you're with me next Tuesday as well, and uh, as I get ready for the national syndication. And I shall return also tomorrow with the usual time. Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yep, you're welcome. Okay. And uh, before we sign off, again, I just want to mention that my books, my books, my books, available on Amazon Kindle. Just go to Amazon Kindle, put my name in the server, that being Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, and you will see my books come up. These are books I've worked very hard on for many years to write. I am making them available to the listener for $2.99. I'll just briefly list them, The Monkey Trial. Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. It deals with the influence of Darwinism on society. Uh, on the Jewish Question, uh, Karl Marx and the War Against the West deals with Marx's anti-Semitic book on the Jewish Question and that influence on society in general, not just on anti-Semitism, but on America. Uh, I've got the uh, Count of Fabians. Republicans in the Age of Obama, which deals with the post-election situation we're in now, and my new book, which will be up in a couple of days, ACORN, The Takeover of America. Anyway, I want to thank you all for listening this afternoon. This is Chuck Morse at Chuck Morse Speaks, uh, 